In case you're still looking for last-minute gift ideas, we've collected into one place all of our favorite ways that you can support the show while doing any holiday shopping, including real books, audiobooks, various apparel and merch, not just our stuff, and of course, gift memberships. Find all that at bestoftheleft.com slash holiday. We appreciate the support. Again, that's bestoftheleft.com slash holiday. And now... Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, with which we shall get you into the Christmas spirit by comparing the Christian nationalists fighting to gain power in the U.S. with the protests against the theocratic regime in Iran supporting women's rights in the country. Clips today are from a BBC News documentary, Democracy Now!, The Tom Hartman Program, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Majority Report, and Vice News, with additional members-only clips from The Tom Hartman Program and All In with Chris Hayes. So Christian nationalism is a new term for a very old phenomenon. So it privileges uh, a religious identity uh, uh, with citizenship in its most virulent form. It turns out to also have an ethnic or racial uh, component to it. Uh, In the U.S., that component has been around European descent or whiteness, um, really, as it has developed in the country. So uh, when I talk about Christian nationalism in the U.S., I usually talk about white Christian nationalism. Donald Trump was seen as defending their cause when he entered the White House. We're going to protect Christianity, and I can say that. I don't have to be politically correct. And it was the storming of the Capitol that showed just how much religious and political identities had begun to merge on the right, bonded by a belief that the election had been stolen. Jesus Christ! We spoke your name! Amen! Amen! Many reject the Christian nationalist label as a leftist smear but a few right-wing politicians are embracing its holy rhetoric. We need to be the party of nationalism, and I'm a Christian and I say it proudly, we should be Christian nationalists. The church is supposed to um, direct government, not the opposite uh, way. The church is supposed to influence government, and and, and we need to be so involved in what is going on in our government. Online, extremists have taken it even further. We are the Christian Taliban. This is, this is the era of Christian nationalism. What's different now uh, is that the country is no longer majority white and Christian. As recently as 2008, when Barack Obama was first running uh, for president, our first African-American president, uh, the country was actually 54% white and Christian, so comfortably majority white and Christian. Uh, That number today is 44%. uh, And I think that threat, right? White Christians no longer knowing they're in control, uh, demographically, culturally, politically, um, is why we're seeing it kind of come to the fore in the current context. Prominent voices in the black church are also sounding the alarm about the racial implications of the movement and warn that the spirit of the January 6th attack was not contained in the Capitol. You can't diminish what happened on January 6th from what's happening in some sanctuaries on Sunday morning. You can't separate this passion to overthrow the nation's capital with violence on January 6th from the rhetoric that you hear on Christian radio. You can't separate this desire to pull down elected officials and maybe even call for their murder versus what we hear, frankly, from people all across the nation, even elected officials who are praying for the death of the president. Many pastors were at the Capitol that day, 
Oh, there he is. I travel to Tennessee, deep in the Bible Belt, where one of them continues to preach. So Pastor Ken has asked me to meet him here on this overpass to watch him waving flags. Seems a bit of a patriotic stunt. I think he does it a lot. Hello, Pastor Ken. Hey. How are you? Good, how are you? Doing good, thank you. God bless you. Thank you very much. And God bless America. And God bless Donald Trump. Ken Peters has denounced the violence of the Capitol riot, but still defends what he sees as a patriotic mission. Come on! We do feel like God has a special plan for this country, and he still has a plan for this country. And on January 6th, you felt that was under threat? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We felt like the the enemy, meaning leftists uh, who don't like Christians, um, had stolen our nation. Peter's Patriot Church is one of a growing number of non-denominational startup congregations that say they want to take back the country for God. I was a little unsure of what to expect. As someone who grew up in the church, what I heard here was not the gospel I knew. Political That's activism as an act of worship. The LGBTQ and the left is saying, oh, you're a church, separation of church and state. Get in the stands. You can't fight the fight. You can't play in the game. Church preachers, you stand up in the stands, separation of church. An aggressive response to a sense of being under siege. Christians are going to have to get feisty. They're going to have to get in the fight a little bit and quit sticking their head in the sand and being completely pacifist when it comes to politics. For him, that means a crusade against abortion. Hey, if God can overturn Roe v. Wade, he can do anything, amen? And ending same-sex marriage. Yeah, I want to exclude certain types of relationships, sexual relationships from the term marriage. It's special to us. It's in the Bible. It's something we really care about. And you want a government that would impose that? I want a government that keeps marriage what it's always been. What he preaches from the pulpit is meant to be taken to the polls. We endorse Monty Fritz. We endorse him. And his message seems to be resonating. Patriot churches have expanded to several locations. Peters says they're attracting followers from more liberal states. To me, this isn't anything new. It's just how I even grew up, God, family, country. That it's, it, There's nothing wrong with that. And... Um, some try to, you know, shame us for loving our country. I mean, this is where God placed us. We wanted to come and find a place that wasn't afraid to take a stand, that wasn't afraid to speak out if there were issues that they thought um, needed to be spoken about. We are definitely a Christian nation and should be a Christian nation. So to try to separate politics from the churches asinine. It cannot be done. Um, and if you're doing it, you're pro- if you are doing that, you're probably doing something wrong. <laughs> I wanted to know if most churches in Tennessee felt the same way. So I continued my journey to the city of Franklin, south of Nashville, in a county that's been called the new frontier for American evangelical Christianity. Father, we thank you for this day. Uh, we thank you for another week. I joined an early morning meeting of community activists who work with the homeless, led by Pastor Kevin Riggs. He grew up as a conservative evangelical and had dreams of becoming a mega-church pastor. But a close reading of the Bible convinced him God cared more about social justice. There's division within the church like I haven't seen it. I've had friends who were pastors of churches and because they spoke out um, 
against um, the religious right or against President Trump, uh, then they're asked to leave their church. What's the threat, do you think? What's the danger? You, you hear the term a lot in, in evangelical cir circles that we're fighting a cultural war. And I think you could very easily replace the word culture with civil. And that's kind of where we are. And it's been a, a cold civil war where it's all been about ideology and fighting for these things. But that could very quickly become violent. Um, it, it could become, you know, the, the, um, the, the right will have a tendency to take up arms um, to protect their, their right. There are pastors who seem to court controversy, even thrive off it. Greg Locke burned Catholic rosaries and Harry Potter books on Halloween night, objects of sorcery and witchcraft, he called them. We don't have to be so careful with what we say. Or... I met him in his studio near Nashville, where he films his popular webcast about faith and politics. The social media, that's the biggest part of it. I think it's about 4.6 million people across all the, you know, Facebook and all the platforms. Of course, no more Twitter. I was suspended for life from Twitter. But uh, at the end of the day, we literally have millions of people that watch. And then that brings a lot of people to the church. Good evening, Global Vision family. Give the Lord some praise in his house. Locke made a name for himself as a Trump pastor, but he really took off by challenging the COVID shutdown. And yes, he was also at the Capitol riot. You ain't seen an insurrection yet. He preaches politics to his following that can sound like extremist rants. You God-hating communist America, you'll find out what an insurrection is because we ain't playing your garbage. We ain't playing your mess. My Bible says that the church of the living God. So you also said in your church that Democrats are demons. Mm -hmm. Do you really believe that? Absolutely. What does I that believe mean? the Democratic Party is demonically energized. And so I told him, look, if you believe in butchering babies and you celebrate stolen elections and you don't want freedom and you're against the Second Amendment or even the First Amendment, then leave. You can leave anytime you want to. It's one thing to be tired of a party. It's another thing to say they are evil, they are demonic. Right. But I don't mind saying that. Couldn't this be a way of inciting to violence those people who listen to you, either in your church or online, because they might take it a step further. If this is evil, I should go after it. You know, every bucket sits on its own bottom. People have been saying that for years. Oh, if you follow Jesus, then that means you're going to make a whip and go into a church and run people out. It's not quite the same thing. It's exactly the same thing. You're calling fellow Americans evil and putting it in the context of an apocalyptic battle between good and evil. There is an apocalyptic battle between and good so and evil. And so that is the kind of language that could be used to incite violence against such people. Well, could no? be and is are two very different things. That's not my responsibility. I have responsibility to You don't to see that as a responsibility no, to stay no. away from possibly inciting violence? No, I'm not inciting violence. Mm. I'm preaching the Bible. Susan, you mentioned uh, the brutal crackdown in particular against uh, uh, minorities in Iran. Could you explain why uh, uh, the crackdown has been especially uh, bad in these uh, uh, minority areas? Those aren't the areas where protests have even been concentrated, or are they? Well, I should I should state before I explain this that these protests are not sectarian in nature. They're national protests, and they involve uh, women um, and a lot of young people, teenagers, uh, Iranians in their 20s, who are sick of the status quo. They want fundamental change. They're asking for fundamental freedoms. Many of them are also asking for regime change. Um, but the, unfortunately, the Iranian state decided to um, 
take a sectarian approach to the crushing of the protests, because if they um, treat the protests as if they're uh, being uh, fomented by separatist movements, then it becomes easier for them to crack down and use violence. But fortunately, I think the Iranians are were smarter than that to buy into this into this uh, plan, the security plan that they had. I should mention that Gina Masa Amini was Kurdish. So one of the first places um, that where protests started was, was in her home city, Saqqaz, during her burial and many other Kurdish cities. The political groups, the political Kurdish groups, many of them in Iraqi Kurdistan, called for general strikes. So the Kurdish area has played a significant role in sustaining these protests. And many of the Kurdish cities have continuously protested. They've also been faced a lot of violence. Javanrud, Mahabad, Saqiz, Sanandaj, all of these cities have faced a lot of violence. And many of these cities have been turned into war zones where you see war artillery move to these cities and people being shot down. And roads to these cities have also been closed off. So people are wanting to go to these cities to provide medical support uh, to citizens there or to for blood drives are prevented from going to those cities if their tags are from a different city. So even if you live there and your tags are from a different city, you're not allowed to go to those cities. So Kurdish areas, for the, one of the main reasons is for this area, because of the sustained protests. But the Baluchi um, uh, region also has faced a significant crackdown. And again, it was part of this ploy by the Iranian security agencies to make this look like a separatist movement. So on September 30th, following the death of Masa Amini, protests, I mean, uh, Friday prayer growers in Zahedan were very angry, both because of what happened nationally, but also because they were upset uh, because of an alleged rape of a young 15-year-old girl by a security, by police in a city in, in Baluchistan. And they started marching towards the police station to ask for accountability. And in just one hour, 103 of these prayer goers, protesters, whatever you want to call them, peaceful, unarmed, were shot and killed. And um, in one hour, most of them were shot in the back meaning that they were running away from the police stations, running away from the bullets. And then subsequent protests across Baluchistan, we've had more killings. So about 50% of all the people who've been killed are either, you know, with, are from Baluchi and Kurdish areas. So this is significant, despite the fact that this is not a sectarian protest, but the bulk of the violence has been directed at these groups. Susan, you mentioned, uh, as we did, uh, that now two uh Prisoners, uh, people charged with participation in the protests, uh, although that's not what they've been convicted of, uh, have now been publicly executed. Uh, and this is in addition, of course, what you're, you're talking about, protesters who've been killed during the protests. Could you explain why you think Iran is now publicly executing uh, these prisoners? It's been a long while since a public execution was carried out, even though Iran is among the countries with the highest uh, rates of uh, imposing the death penalty, second only uh, to China. Yeah, well, I think that this has two messages. One is to instill fear among protesters that this could be your fate. It's not that you just go to prison, but you could get killed. And the second message is to send a message to um, the security forces who've carried out the bulk of these crackdowns that we are with you. And if, you know, if there are people who are accused of killing or 
um, uh, engaging in violent behavior against the security forces, against the Basij militia, against the IRGC, we're going to make them suffer and we're going to make them pay. I have to say that, you know, the, it's only one, it's only the second uh, protester, Majid Jazarah Navar, who was hanged publicly. The first one wasn't hanged publicly, um, who was uh, Mohsen Shekari. Both of them were 23-year-olds. And Mohsen Shekari was uh, charged with shutting down the street preventing from traffic from moving. So it's, you know, it's really um, didn't cause any harm to anybody. This is according to what he was charged with, which is a source of, you know, concern and question for human rights observers or for those who are observing the judicial process. But nevertheless, even according to Islamic Republic of Iran, he wasn't charged with killing or creating any sort of bodily injury or harm to anyone. But still, he was charged as a um, uh, as somebody who's waging war against God. And there's been a lot of uh, criticism of this, including from religious leaders or um, uh, legal experts who say that even according to their own laws, this is this is wrong. But nevertheless, he was he was both of them were arrested, tried, sentenced and executed in a matter of a few weeks. And the head of the judiciary a couple, I guess, about a week ago, mentioned that very proudly that they have um, conducted these trials very quickly. And we see that they have conducted these trials very quickly because they don't meet any standard of fair trial practice. Most importantly is that most of these prisoners and people standing for trial, these protesters, don't have access to a lawyer of their choice. They're At best, they're given a court-appointed lawyer. And these court-appointed lawyers are people who formerly, most of them had worked within the judiciary, and they're not going to serve the best interest of their clients. They're going to serve the best interest of uh, the state and the judiciary. And many of them, we think, are pressured, uh, tortured, uh, uh, psychologically or physically and, and forced into false confessions. Um, so it's it's really very concerning that there is no due process and it's certainly not justice. Hey everyone, so we know and you know that as the year comes to a close, it is that time when everyone is asking you for something. But the fact is, that Best of the Left really needs to be on your list because we could really use your help this month. We're asking for 100 new or upgraded members by the end of the year because the reality is that we're making up for a, a little bit of lost time. We didn't run a membership drive over the summer as we usually do, and we are honestly in a bit of a tight spot financially. And what we would like to do is invest in the show, invest in new ideas, you know, the classic takes money to make money sort of scenario. And we'd like to invest in the show and make it better than ever. So if you can become a member today, we could really use your help. And it would be a real investment, not only in the continuation of the show, but in helping us to build on what we have. So if that sounds worthwhile, head to bestofleft.com slash support for all the ways to sign up. You can find us on Patreon and right in the Apple Podcasts app as well. And when you become a member, you not only support the future of this show, but you also get to hear the thoughtful and fun bonus shows that myself, Amanda, and our assistant producers, Aaron and Dion, have been putting out just for members. And don't forget that we have Best of Left gift memberships as well, so if you're already a member, consider giving the gift of progressive media this holiday season. It's always the right size and is one of the few gifts that actually has the power to improve the quality of conversations between yourself and the person you give it to. As always, thanks for your support.
years after U.S. troops began the war in Afghanistan, the Taliban are once again in control of the country. As the Taliban ripped through Afghanistan in August 2021, the world watched in horror. This was a country backed by the planet's leading superpower, and most thought its government would hold out for months. But the Taliban's rapid offensive left the world stunned. And for extremist groups with fantasies of overthrowing governments, it was a moment of triumph. The white supremacists and violent anti-government extremists are now openly, and this is pretty stunning, identifying with the Taliban. This is the story of how the Taliban's victory and the wider jihadist movement has inspired the far right. Some groups going as far as to suggest that the Taliban should be seen as a model for executing a civil war here in the United States. And how extremist groups with seemingly opposing ideologies have drawn influence from each other in their fights against democracy and liberalism. I raise a glass to the liberators of Afghanistan, the Taliban. This is the American white nationalist, Nick Fuentes. He's one of many far-right figures, from neo-Nazis to QAnon followers, who've praised the Taliban since their victory. For the far-right extremists, the Taliban represent what many of them hope to achieve in their own countries here in the West, which is basically overthrowing the democratic system through armed struggle and violence and to create a quote-unquote pure society based on their hateful creed. It may seem strange, but the far-right and militant Islamists actually have quite a few shared enemies, from governments to the Jewish community to women and minorities. Their view on minorities and women are incredibly similar. It is not unusual to see white supremacy extremists talk about women in an incredibly traditional and degrading and oppressive way, just like how uh, women are seen inside the Islamic State as baby-making traditional wives. A very strong connector is anti-Semitic hatred. A general glorification of violence, a warrior culture, a culture of self-sacrifice, and generally uh, a widespread violent hatred against Western democracies, Western concepts of pluralism and liberalism. But it's not just the ideological views of these two groups that are similar. Experts say the psychology behind their beliefs also has a lot in common. Salafi, jihadi and far-right movements are functioned through similar cognitive frameworks. They both embrace a Manichaean perception of the world that clearly divides humanity between good and evil. In both movements, there is a clear group clear adversary groups and nothing in the middle. Both frameworks basically aim at getting rid of this annoying constraint that is called nuance. These black and white perceptions of right and wrong explain how groups that hate each other can end up with such similar worldviews. Both actors have this firm belief that their societies are under siege and that uh, violence can is the only thing that can halt the quote-unquote invaders. Um, and for jihadists, this means an assault on Muslims by the West. And for white supremacists, it means encroachment from multiculturalism, immigration, and so-called Islamization of society. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. Disturbingly, none of this is really new. Far-right groups have been expressing a grudging admiration for Islamists 
and vice versa for decades. Today's neo-Nazis and white supremacists, they like to go back to the Third Reich, to Nazi Germany, where the Hitler government actually tried to establish contacts with Islamic rulers, Gret Mufti, for example, in Egypt, uh, to win them over as allies in the Second World War against the Western forces. And obviously, they tried to establish a common ground based on what they believed was a shared anti-Semitic, anti-Jew hatred. Some of the most violence-oriented far-right organizations here in America, they have long veneered figures like Osama bin Laden, the late leader of Al-Qaeda. You know, we've even seen evidence of the, these groups sharing Al-Qaeda bomb manuals, organizing operational cells in a very similar fashion, using propaganda and recruitment tactics as similar to that of the Islamic State. Similarities between some of this propaganda is pretty shocking. But it's not just the far right who've learned from the jihadists. One of the main things that Islamist groups have learned from far right groups is the mileage that can be gained from being a culture warrior. And we really saw this reflected in the propaganda that was put out by both ISIS and Al-Qaeda after the January 6th attack. There was a lot of admiration for that. So these terror groups really honed in on the grievances of the people who are out there storming the capital. With extremist groups from different ends of the spectrum reveling in the destabilized political order and fueling each other into greater radicalization, things are only going to get weirder. The terrorism landscape of today, if we compare it to 20 years ago when 9-11 happened, is that it's more diverse and it's more diffuse. And we have both the global Salafi jihadist threat that we need to keep an eye on, whilst at the same time, combating the threat within, at home, uh, the domestic terrorism threat, which is primarily majority made up of far-right extremists. So all of a sudden, we have to look abroad and at home, and that is a momentous task. This is really at its core a fight for uh, women and uh, queer folks to have choices over their bodies. So what's really important, as Nilu was providing the context, is that um, the the Islamic Republic has implemented um, laws that... Uh, that are severely restrictive for women um, since the very beginnings of the 1979 revolution and the start of the state. Um, so, and what's significant here about what happened uh, to Amini is that uh, she was caught at the hands of the so-called morality police, which are a police force that are a daily occurrence all across Iran. All women have had some kind of interactions with the morality police and families, uh, uh, including religious ones, have had some form of, of uh, interaction with these police because their daughters may not be availing uh, as religiously as the mothers have. And so this is something that women are, are dealing with every day. Um, when uh, Amini was taken, first uh, ended up in a coma and later uh, died uh, from the injuries that she sustained, um, what we are seeing is that the the ways in which women in Iran have been resisting every single day against these restrictions over the past 40 years, we now see this as a rupture in collective action. Uh, so it, it's not surprising to me that um, sort of this generation's 
um, and in our global moment, our generation's first big feminist uprising that is militant in style is, is taking place in Iran on this level because uh, Iranian women have uh, over four decades of experience of a daily acts of resistance against patriarchal laws and against patriarchal norms. And so as conservative movements uh, are rising across the world, as we see more and more laws that are coming down against women, and, you know, I think it's worth noting that conservative movements, when they rise, and religious movements, when they rise, first and foremost, they go after the rights of women. And so right now, I think even though traditional media has been very slow to cover this uprising, it's been um, interesting. Internet users all over the world that have made hashtag Massa Amini trend. And it's that's the reason we're all having this conversation today. So it's striking a chord with people all over the world who are in one way or another experiencing either once again or a continuation of increased patriarchal control over women's bodies. And so the protests in Iran are capturing our attention because we're seeing in real life how women are putting their lives on the line and are refusing to comply any longer. You know, power and patriarchy requires that we comply. And so we're seeing now a uh, young women and, and women across Iran who are just saying, I will no longer comply with this. Uh, Professor Bajigli, I want to ask you, Bajigli, I want to ask you uh, uh, about what you see as the potential outcome uh, of these protests. I was listening to uh, an interview on the BBC with a renowned uh, Iranian graphic novelist, Majan Satrapi, who said that irrespective of what happens, the Islamic Republic is now a corpse. But you write in your piece that, uh, in your Vanity Fair piece, that the street rebellions may or may not succeed in toppling the regime or changing the laws, but that's almost beside the point. Can you explain what you mean by that and what the effects of these protests might be, even if the regime doesn't fall? Right. So we don't, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't predict what's going to happen. But um, at the moment, uh, what is very significant about these protests is that women are taking uh, control back from the state. They are saying, we will not allow you to define how we come out onto the street. We will define this for ourselves. Um, and uh, and so what is significant here is that, you know, when, when you rise up against powers and, 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 and things that have been around for millennia, like patriarchy, which is, you know, one of, unfortunately, one of the universal values that we see around us. Um, this is something that it takes a, um, we have to be able to envision that we can live in a society without that. And, and so what that requires is a, a representation of, res, of resisting that kind of power. And what we have now in Iran, for Iranians, which is extremely significant, is that we have on a daily basis is now various forms of civil disobedience, which are about standing up against patriarchal power. And we're seeing more and more slogans also that say it might not be always the morality police, but the morality police could also be called your father. So it's, it's, it's going to the core of patriarchy in the state and patriarchy in the home. Um, and it's really, and that's what makes this feminist to its core. It's saying that in order for us to have any kind of freedom, political or otherwise, women need to be free. Um, and and so the, the long-term consequences of this are significant because what we see also in Iran is that young girls in schools, elementary school students, middle school students, high school students are, as you guys showed on your piece, are throwing out 
um, uh, those who have enforced these laws in their schools for over four decades. And so it, this is just the start of, of women and girls seeing their power, seeing it reverberate, and then seeing it in, and, and seeing so many people around the world showing solidarity to it. Um, and, and that is significant for Iran, but it's also significant for all of us as we're sitting here contemplating how we're going to be fighting back against all of these laws that are trying to restrict our bodies now. We are we are now seeing a very confrontational, militant form of fem- feminism rising up from Iran, showing us how to do that. Can you define for us exactly what white supremacy, white nationalism, uh, what these what these things mean and how they're being played out in the American political scene today? You know, I think they're connected in a lot of ways. There's a there's this line that runs through a lot of the far right ideologies we see white nationalism, Christian nationalism, white supremacy. It's the it's an underlying ideology that. The United States was founded by and for white Christian people. And the white Christian people are therefore the quote unquote real Americans and everyone else is not. And uh, if that's your worldview, then you can look at the increasing diversity in this country and the growth of religious and ethnic diversity and pluralism, not as uh, something to be welcomed and as a strength of a democratic society, you can view it through the lens of white grievance. Like this was our country and these other people are taking it away from us. And that kind of core uh, ideology and grievance underlies uh, a lot of the anti-Semitism that's out there. It underlies the anti-black racism. And those are mixed together. In Buffalo, the shooter targeted black people based on his interpretation of this great replacement theory which was that, you know, secretive Jewish forces were using black people to replace white people. And that kind of that great replacement theory, we have seen that result in not only the killing of black people in Buffalo, but Jewish people at the synagogue in Pittsburgh, Latinos at the Walmart in El Paso, Muslims in Christchurch, New Zealand. It's it is a very deadly threat. And yet the great replacement theory uh, gets promoted ad nauseum on Fox News. Peter, how, what are what are the dimensions of this problem in the United States? Well, you know, I think it's hard to um, get a grip really on on the extent of people who might be moved to violence by being radicalized online. It's certainly enough of a problem that we've seen a lot of people killed as a result of it. We do know that you know there is a some pretty good chunk of Americans out there, whether it's 15 or 20 or 25 percent, who bought into QAnon conspiracy theories, who bought into Trump's relentless lies about the 2020 election. We know that some sociologists who've, who've studied Christian nationalism have documented uh, in a very uh, strong way that the stronger a person's Christian nationalist beliefs are, the more likely they are to believe that political violence might be necessary to achieve, uh, to protect America as they see it, and the more willing they are to support authoritarianism as a means to creating the kind of country they want. So I would say it's a very significant problem. 
It's also a very significant problem because Donald Trump, the former president of the United States and uh, current candidate to become president again, continues to promote anti-democratic conspiracy theories to try to undermine confidence in elections. He even recently suggested that the Constitution be set aside so that he could somehow be reinstalled as president, even though he lost. to ask you a bit about the origins of the morality police uh the group that was responsible for the death of masa hamini um the the it to me from the outside it seems like a, a glorified like street gang that now has legitimacy and has gotten so uh over a period of time can you give us a rundown of that process and, and I guess how the Iranian revolution sparked their existence and, and where they're at today? Yeah, so the uh, the morality police initially used to just be called the committees. And this started a few years into the revolution. In 1983, Iran's hijab law was actually systematized and formalized legally so that all Iranian women in public uh, after the age of puberty had to cover up. Um, and so with that, we, you had these vans and cars going around the cities and um, admonishing or apprehending women who, in their opinion, weren't covered up enough. In 2005, um, the Ahmadinejad government actually formalized this and put the morality police force under the auspices of the police. And so it became much more sort of regulated. It was supposed to go against the sort of haphazard, uh, you know, events that would take place with the committees roaming the streets, which, as you said, were sort of, you know, uh, glorified vigilantes. And so this formalization was supposed to be actually a kind of reform. Um, however, with the election of Ibrahim Raisi, you know, and then we, you, you would see sort of ebbs and flows of that, right? Sort of when a more conservative president like Ahmadinejad would take office, he would, um, you know, promise that women would be apprehended and greater morality would be brought to the streets. And especially over the course of the sort of summer, women would be um, uh, would be arrested and harassed more. With Ibrahim Raisi, who's the most conservative president that Iran has had uh, in post-revolutionary Iran, he was the you know, the a protector of the shrine of the holiest shrine in the country, the head of the judiciary. So very sort of conservative pedigree. As soon as he took office, he said, I am going to bring morality back to the streets, not least because uh, and Sam, over the last three, four years, Iranian women have actually pushed back against the hijab. So we've seen this, uh, you know, what a sociologist called as the Fayyad calls non-movement. So through not really political organizing, but everyday practices, they had already loosened the hijab laws in the public spaces. So they'd already sort of, you know, let the headscarf roll to their shoulders, not bothering to put it back right away. So across the city, Iranians had seen a pushback against the hijab that was um, you know, unprecedented, even though they'd done it over the last two, three decades. But the, the visuals of this was really unprecedented to the extent that one would see many women without headscarves. And so he said, I'm going to bring the morality back to the streets. And so the morality police became much harsher against women. And so we reached the point where Mahsa Amini, somebody who was comparatively actually well-dressed, and this was part of the discourse, right? When you see the CCTV footage of her from within the holding ground where she was held by the morality police. She's wearing a long black robe. She's wearing a headscarf. Her hair is pretty well covered. Um, 
that is pretty impeccable hijab compared to some of the women you will see in in Tehran streets who are bare, who are not even wearing actually a coat and whose hair scarf is more like a bandana. And so that I think really enraged people because they could identify with Mahsa Amini as somebody who could be anyone's wife, sister, mother. She was very, very sort of, you know, an everyday kind of woman um, that everybody could identify with and, um, and hence the protests. Do you have a sense of like what, what, what what happens next? I mean, the it doesn't it 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 seems like it there the momentum uh, for this has at least maintained. I think longer than maybe many people would have uh, guessed a couple of months ago. Um, what, what is there a is there a cohort of society that you have yet to see? respond that must respond before there is any type of like revolutionary change? Yes, I think, you know, we really see civil disobedience across the board. We see, um, you know, expressions of solidarity across the board. What we haven't seen yet, which, uh, you know, somebody like Erica Chenner with at Harvard, for example, argues is necessary for the success of revolutionary uprisings or for, for a revolution to succeed is, um, at, you know, internally for at least the security forces and the military military forces to start um, giving up their posts and to, um, you know, uh, sort of join the movement. It's not clear that they haven't. There have been some reports that, you know, the kind of forces that we see on the streets uh, more recently uh, are bodied with super young uh, sort of, you know, security officers and also older one, which kind of points to the fact that maybe they're going to their reserves um, so we're not exactly sure, but we haven't. It certainly isn't clear yet that they have, um, you know, in, in, a, in a significant way joined the protests. And so that's uh, what Iranians are looking to. And they're calling for that in their chance too. they're saying, join us, join us. You know, this is um, you no longer can be bystanders. You are on the wrong side of history. I, and I guess actually, lastly, sorry, um, the there were reports that the prosecutors have pulled back from the morality police and it's unclear as to, are they disbanding them or are they basically just saying, take a break? Um, is that potentially indicative of maybe trying to let a little air out of the tires so that there is not, um, so that they don't lose the support of the broader sort of, I guess, uh, internal national security state. Right. So this came up recently and, you know, it was wildly reported across Western media that Iran has disbanded the morality police, which is a big deal, of course. But there was actually a lot of confusion around that. This was not an intentional statement by the Iranian government. It happened sort of in the middle of a press conference where a reporter asked, you know, since the since this uh, the protests have started, we haven't really seen the morality police on the streets. So what's happening? Have they disbanded? And so his response was the same place that you know, established them, has disbanded them. However, soon after that, both that official and others have said, no, we're still going to go about and police the streets. I think what we have to hold on to, Sam, is that, you know, no matter sort of, they're they're clearly trying to figure it out, right? They're trying to figure out to what extent and how are we going to uh, to enforce more, um, you know, morality on the streets um, because this has led to a big backlash. But I think what we have to hold on to is that for the very first time in its history, the Islamic Republic uh, has publicly um, stated and admitted that it's trying to figure out what to do about the morality police. And a high official, the prosecutor general, has even said it's been disbanded. And this is due to protesters over the last 12 weeks risking and losing their lives on the street. I think that's sort of the point that we should hold on to, which is 
they have achieved something. If, if not nothing else, then a confusion uh, by the state trying to figure out what to do. We've got the leading presidential contender for the Republican nomination in 2024. This holiday weekend, having a nice Thanksgiving dinner with Kanye West, the rapper who just lost all of his corporate sponsorship deals when he started saying he was going to go DEFCON 3 on the Jews. The leading Republican presidential candidate, their last president, Donald Trump, just hosted Mr. West this weekend. Uh, and also this man for a uh, what was apparently a very nice Thanksgiving dinner at the pre- former president's home. When you look at these things like uh, abortion, it's popular. People like abortion. Hate it, but it's true. And you can thank the Jewish media for that. Abortion's popular. Sodomy's popular. You know, being gay is popular. Being a feminist is popular. Sex out of wedlock is popular. Contraceptives are that's all popular. That's all. That's not to say it's good. That's not to say I like that. Popular means the people support it, which they do. And uh, and it sucks, and it is what it is. But that's why we need uh, dictatorship. <laughs> that's unironically why we need to get rid of all that. We need to take control of the media or take control of the government and force the people to believe what we believe. That's why we need a dictatorship. Force people to believe what we believe. We need a dictatorship, unironically. So that clip is um, from People for the American Way. They have a project called Right Wing Watch, where they monitor and document what's going on on the ultra-right, on the far-right fringe. Um, and that's a great public service all of the time. I'll tell you, it becomes a fire alarm system for the whole country when someone from that fringe, someone from that far out on the political spectrum, ends up having a Thanksgiving dinner with the Republican Party's leading candidate for president. Here's the pathway. We have one more election where white people can make the decision. The white people got to make the right decision and then Trump's got to get in there and never leave. That, to me, at this point is a pathway. It's time to shut up, elect Trump one more time, and then stop having elections. We have got to talk about the fundamentals of our worldview and what it would look like to build a society based on our distinct worldview. It looks like a society where women don't have the right to vote. And it looks like a society where boys and girls get married as teenagers and start having kids. And they don't use birth control and they don't use contraceptives. And they have big families and a high birth rate. And it looks like women wearing veils at church. And it looks like Women not being in the workforce. Banning gay marriage is back on the menu. Banning sodomy is back on the menu. Banning contraceptives is back on the menu. And basically, we're having something like Taliban rule in America, in a good way. We're having something like a Catholic Taliban rule in America. The reason groups like People for the American Way monitor guys like this and keep track of what they are saying and doing is not just because a guy like this might have an incidental effect someday on some real politician who interacts with them. No, the reason that it is worth keeping track of Holocaust-denying racist agitators who advocate race war and, I kid you not, burning women alive in America— The reason you monitor guys like that is not just because of their potential future impact someday on other people who have power. It's because of their power and because of the damage that they want to do. 
And guys like that, neo-Nazi agitators getting a big proverbial hug, getting a private audience with the Republican Party's likely next presidential nominee. Yes, sure, that reflects on that political candidate and on his party. But more importantly, it's great for the Nazis, right? It's a supercharging thing for them, for their perceived legitimacy, their reach, their ability to get their message out to people, to operate, to recruit, and to do what they want to do, which in this guy's case is turning the United States of America into a whites-only, no-Jews-allowed fascist homeland under a dictator who he would please like to be Donald Trump. Suzanne, uh, what has been, uh, I mean, apart, of course, from these uh, horrific executions and uh, arrests and deaths, uh, there have been some reports that the Iranian government is uh, somehow responding also positively to the protests, Iran's attorney general having announced that both parliament and the judiciary are reviewing the hijab laws, uh, some people uh, reporting that the so-called morality police are less visible now on the streets. Do you think any of this is important? Actually, I don't think any of it is true. <laughs> that's that's the thing. I think people were expecting, and maybe it would have been logical for them to really review um, these uh, horrific policies, these very violent policies of enforcing women, you know, enforcing a particular dress code on women, policing women's bodies. Um, but and there were some news about. I think there was a. Um, a a press conference by a judiciary uh, official who mentioned something about how this this is an issue that morality police has to do with the police, not the judiciary. And people took that as if the morality police uh, was going to be dismantled. But then we immediately heard uh, other accounts from other um, sources within the Iranian government that denied that. Unfortunately, the Iranian state has dismantled every possible opportunity and a mechanism to uh, create reform or to respond to the demands of the Iranian people. Um, you know, Iranians voted uh, multiple times for over two decades for some process of reform or some hope of reform. But uh, the state has not has not uh, given into those demands and has not allowed for any form of reform. And I think that this is the result. What we're seeing now is the result, because these extreme hardliners have a very different vision for the future of Iran and the future of Iranians than Iranians themselves. And there's there seems to be no process of negotiation, unfortunately. They're not engaging in any kind of negotiation and they're not backing down at all. And it's, you know, I think it's unfortunate. Some Something has to give. Suzanne, could you, uh, before we end, talk about what you think uh, the global response should be uh, from the global south, but also from the EU uh, and the U.S.? You'd previously been extremely critical, for instance, about sanctions on Iran, saying that they harm women in particular. Uh, but earlier this month, the, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee approved a bipartisan resolution reaffirming 
confirming U.S. support for Iranian protesters and calling on the Biden administration to impose additional sanctions on Iranian officials and entities. The EU and Britain have taken similar steps, and many Iranians in the diaspora are supporting these steps, even those who previously opposed sanctions. What are you hearing about what protesters in Iran are calling for from the international community? Well, I think the international community needs to act in a coordinated manner um, to press Iran through whatever means it can to stop the executions. We now have, you know, 10 people who've been sentenced to execution that we know for sure, possibly more than that, and then many, many more who could potentially face execution. So this is, I think this needs to be top priority through whatever diplomatic channels or whatever pressure means to stop the executions of peaceful protesters um, and to uh, respect the rights further to release the protesters, release the scores and scores of human rights defenders, including nearly 170 women human rights defenders that we've documented who've been uh, imprisoned since the start of the protests. I think in terms of um, sanctions, yes, I have consistently been opposed to uh, economic sanctions because I think that they're broad, they're they, they, they're indiscriminate. They ta target and harm ordinary citizens, especially marginalized communities the most. I'm not opposed to targeted sanctions on individuals for human rights violations. I think that's great that, that we should see more of that. But I think in terms of if there's entities that are being sanctioned, that there should be a harm assessment done before those sanctions are implemented to see if the sanctions are going to harm Iranians, if it's going to harm their access to the Internet, for example, or if it's going to harm their their ability to continue with their protests or their their freedoms in some way. Uh, Canada, Canada did uh, sanctions against heads of the IRGC, which is which is fine, because before the U.S. did sanctions against IRGC that included 11,000 ordinary people who had to serve military service. So there hadn't been a harm analysis. And I think that harm analysis is really important with respect to sanctions. We've just heard clips today starting with the BBC diving into the world of white Christian nationalism. Democracy Now! looked at the protests in Iran against the morality police as protesters are being executed for going to war against God. Vice explored the cross-pollination and shared visions of the Taliban in Afghanistan and the Christian nationalists in the U.S. Democracy Now! continued their coverage of Iran, discussing the militant feminism that is the inevitable response to theocratic oppression. Tom Hartman examined the origins of Christian nationalism and its tendency to lead to political violence and calls for authoritarianism. The Majority Report looked at the impact the protests in Iran are having. The Rachel Maddow Show looked more closely at Nick Fuentes, his theocratic views, and his calls for a dictatorship. And Democracy Now! discussed the global response to the crackdown in Iran, including the need for carefully targeted sanctions. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard bonus clips looking at two cases now before our Supreme Court, the first from the Tom Hartman program discussing the high school coach coercing prayer in school. 
This is a case about a football coach in a public school, that's important, who violated the religious freedom of his students by pressuring them to pray with him at the 50-yard line immediately after games. The school district tried to work with him to say, look, you can't do that. That's a clear violation of the First Amendment of our Constitution, but we'd love to find a way for you to still pray just in a way that doesn't pressure students. And he flat out rejected their multiple overtures, said he only wanted to be able to pray in a way that students could join him and continued. And then he sued the school district. And the second from All In With Chris Hayes, looking at the case of the web designer who is seeking the right to discriminate against a protected class of people based on her religion. One of the ones they used was was the black carpenter who makes crosses but doesn't want to make a cross for the KKK. Right. Isn't that discrimination? No, it's not discrimination <laughs> because if I'm a black carpenter, I can easily say I don't want to make uh, crosses for the KKK. What I can't say is I will not make any crosses for white folks. Yes. Now, it is Sam Alito and Amy Barrett who seems to think that there is no dis- difference between right. white folks and the KKK. I happen to think better of white people and think that there's a huge difference between a white person who wants a cross for a religious ceremony and a white person who wants a cross for a Klan rally. To hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com slash support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. And finally today, I just have some more advice for the white supremacists and Christian nationalists who I am positive listen to this show because they appreciate hearing a diverse set of opinions that may differ from their own as part of a healthy media diet. Previously, I pointed out to those hoping to stoke a race war that what they would actually end up with is not so much a race war as a racism war in which all white racists would fight on one side, but not all the white people in general, as they seem to hope. And with that clarification, I hope they can better see how badly that conflict would go for them. Well, today... Similarly, I want to give some advice and some long-term perspective to those listeners of Best of the Left who are, on one hand, hoping for a Christian Taliban-style dictatorship, but are also here to get a diverse set of opinions. The first point is that dictatorships rarely last much longer than the life of the dictator, so this project you're building toward is pretty unlikely to be very long-lived. That's just the first point. The second point is that although you may like to imagine that taking over the media and using it for your own propaganda needs to change everyone's mind and make everyone believe the same things that you do, that is going to have limited success and is really only going to work well on the kids. So you may be able to raise a generation or so of Christian fascists, but when the dictatorship falls, they'll be the only ones left as true believers. And think about how the rest of their lives are going to go. They're, they're going to be holding on to these beliefs that are seen by the rest of society as hateful and wrong. That'll be such a sad and lonely existence for them, just like the Nazi youth generation who had to spend the rest of their lives hiding their true feelings just to be accepted by polite society. And speaking of the Nazis, that brings me to my third point, which is, as we heard today in the coverage of Iran's attempt to maintain their theocracy, it's an effort that requires a whole lot of murder. So, like, is that really how you want to spend the next few decades before the dictatorship inevitably falls? Murdering people who disagree with you? I mean, in a very different context, uh, usually talking about social media addiction, I really like the phrase, your life will have been what you paid attention to. 
And I think that applies equally well, whether you're talking about staring at your news feed on your phone or ordering the murders of dissidents. And another good phrase I like is that when you say yes to one thing, you're also saying no to all the other possibilities. The point is that we have a finite amount of time to allocate, and when we decide to spend our time and resources on one project, that same time and energy can't also be spent elsewhere. So you really have to ask yourself, do you want to spend all the time and energy it would require to erect and maintain a Christian dictatorship through the deployment of extensive resources to repress and murder people, only to have it crumble within a few decades. Because there are other ways you could spend your time. Like, I hear pickleball is really catching on. So, in short, the upfront and ongoing investment requirements for a Christian nationalist dictatorship are high, the long-term prospects are not favorable, and, in the meantime, you have to get really comfortable with being a murderer, which, even if you think you're doing it for the greater good, is a tough pill for most to swallow. And keep in mind, the alternative to a Christian dictatorship isn't that you have to personally become a progressive, multicultural, democratic socialist. You can keep being hateful and exclusionary in your private lives and teach your kids the same, but you'll have so much more free time to dedicate to having fun or personal growth or spending time with your hateful children, and you wouldn't have to murder anyone. And that's what I call a win-win. As always, keep the comments coming in, and remember that our old number now does new tricks. You can leave a voicemail, as always, or you can now send us a text message through standard SMS, find us on WhatsApp, or the Signal messaging app, all with the same number, which is 202-999-3991, or keep it old school by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today and for this year. It's been a good one. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron and Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Brian, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast. Gas app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes, in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes, all through your regular podcast player. And if you want to continue the discussion, join our Best of Left Discord community to talk about the show or the news or other shows or other news or videos you've seen or books you've read or a meme you made or uh, pretty much anything you like. A link to join is in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.